invite you to turn in the Word of God to Exodus chapter 20, a passage that I imagine is familiar to most, but certainly not to all of us here. Exodus 20 in the Old Testament, as well as in the Thin Forms and Prayers book to Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 240 in the Forms and Prayers book. If somehow there's not a Forms and Prayers book near you, you can always find this as well in the back of the hymnal, Lord's Day 34. By the way, this is an aside from what I am planning to preach tonight, but it is something I've been thinking about lately, which may benefit you. Take it as an exhortation. It's not going to be new to the vast majority of you, but it is an exhortation. It is very easy to confuse gifts with graces. Gifts are the things that we are able through God's grace to do. In particular, to do for others. Graces are those virtues and affections that God forms in us, whether or not anyone can see them outwardly. And you can have a person who is exercising the gifts, but who is at a low ebb grace-wise. Talk about love and joy and peace. You can go through the motions outwardly and have very little joy, very little actual peace. I want to exhort you, do not let... Your gifts stand in the place of the graces. And those graces very much are, in God's economy and his way of working, ordinarily dependent upon you spending time with him. Meaningful time with him. Every day, living as before the Lord. Being in prayer on a daily basis. I say that as somebody who experiences that all the time myself. Not above that at all. It is so easy to be busy for the Lord and yet have very little to do with the Lord. And if you find yourself struggling to sense the value, especially as you hear the word, my experience is that typically that is because we are at a low ebb of the graces. There's nothing wrong with the scriptures and with the service typically in its basic essence, but there's often something wrong with me. And I know that we have an intern right now and I get to listen to somebody else preaching. And I will find my own self struggling to track along and to derive nourishment, not just facts, but nourishment. That's not because of something lacking in God's word and what he's revealed. Now, this evening, we have the opportunity to think about the law of God as we are in that section looking at God's moral will. I imagine that most of us, and maybe some children even recently, have seen a prism. A prism is an object that's clear to look at, Often it's made of something like quartz or glass or crystal. And if you put a beam of light through it, suddenly that light gets refracted into its component wavelengths. You see the different colors. I get to see this almost every morning at this time of year. Just the way God has set up this solar system during the wintertime, light comes through my patio glass door, bounces off a certain mirror that has a beveled edge, comes over to my microwave, and my children point out almost every morning, rainbows, and they are seeing the refraction of light. You have light coming in one form, very pure, and then it gets split into component colors, and you can think about it with respect to those different wavelengths, red, orange, yellow, green, blue. Somewhat similarly, When we think about the law of God, we have to begin not at how it has been refracted in these verbal statements in the scripture. We have to begin at what it is in its essence. It is the character of God. 
It is pure. It is light of light. It is moral radiance, spiritual illuminescence. But then, for our benefit, it gets refracted in different ways in these various statements in the Bible. What is it at its essence? Romans chapter 13 summarizes the whole law this way, where it says, Romans 13, 9 through 10, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one command, love. Love, what is it? How you define it, that's the billion-dollar question because it's going to shape everything. If the essence of the law is love, then what you think love is is going to shape how you live. There are different definitions that are serviceable, but the best ones are those which are striving to fit with Scripture. We think about what is the law of God. It is to love and to love, one definition that you might take with you. It's not the easiest, but it's a good one. Is that love is an affection, so it's... uh, an appetite of the heart. Love is an affection that finds satisfaction in seeking that which is good for its object. You say you love somebody, but you don't care about what's good for them. You do not love them in that sense. Love is an affection that finds satisfaction in seeking what is rightful for another person. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit love one another by desiring for one another and rejoicing in one another to have what is rightfully theirs as God. They love one another. And even so, when you think about what it means to fulfill the commandments of God, you have to ask, how do we love others? Starting with love for God and love for our neighbor. That's how it gets refracted into two beams by Jesus in Matthew 22. He says in verse 37 through 40 of Matthew 22, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Remember, under the Old Covenant, the laws are divided under that economy into over 600 different commands. Jesus says that it really comes down to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So the question is, how does love manifest in all your various relationships? Jesus refracts it into two major categories, love God, love your neighbor. Of course, loving your neighbor is love for God because God wants you to do that. So it's all love for God. But it can be broken down basically in those categories. When we come to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you basically have them divided into two, they're often called tables, two categories, the ones that deal explicitly with how we relate to God, and then those that are mediated through our way of relating to our neighbors. The first four commandments being the first table, the latter six being the second table, as we typically think about it. Now look with me at verse 1 of Exodus 20, where it says, all these words God spoke. All these words. It's because of that phrase that the Ten Commandments are often called the Decalogue, which just means ten words. Maybe you wondered if you've heard Decalogue, that's what it's coming from. There are, in effect, ten things The word word, also in Hebrew, just means thing. There are ten things, God says here, ten major ideas. Now, I want to be clear as we begin to move into looking at the various ten commandments over a number of weeks, perhaps months, to look at these various commandments. As they are summarized in the the ten commandments, there are some details, particularly in the fourth, that are 
there, there's, how do I find the right word for this? They are formed by the covenantal time they are in. Now, I want to be clear with you. As reformed Christians, and together with Christians throughout all times, the consensus has always been, there is an abiding moral essence in all ten of the Ten Commandments. None of them have been taken away by the New Covenant. But aspects of how they were stipulated under the Old Covenant have been changed. The big word for that is abrogated. They've been modified in terms of how we relate to them. Let me give you an example of this in the Fourth Commandment. In the Fourth Commandment, God's people are told to set aside basically one day out of seven for rest and for corporate worship, to put aside from themselves unnecessary work. But the way that it's stipulated under the Old Covenant is that it's to be from sundown to sundown. That's very much tied to God's providential working of the covenant history that most of his people, the vast majority of them, would live at a certain latitude. Think about that for a moment. If you try to keep the Sabbath strictly in a Jewish sense, as sundown to sundown, and you live in Nome, way up north, you're going to have a, like a four-month Sabbath. <laughs> the principle, the principle in each of the commands holds. If you go back to creation, it's that out of seven units of solar days, one of them is set aside to the Lord. That ordinarily they follow in succession. And so when we work our way through the Ten Commandments, there are aspects that we have to think about, or the promise that you shall live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you. Paul builds on that in Ephesians 6. What does that mean in the New Covenant context? But they have an abiding moral principle that goes with us. And that is most clear in the first commandment. Let's give our attention to that, and then we'll ask God's blessing. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Our Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to meditate upon your will this evening. We ask that you would illumine our minds, that you would guard us from error, that you would refine us that you would stoke a fire where perhaps we know things but are not living according to them. We ask for our younger or less mature members that you would lay a good foundation for them, especially as we begin with this chief of the commandments. We thank you that you will act according to your goodness, for we ask these things trusting in Christ our Savior and intermediary. In his name we pray. Amen. The very first of all the commandments begins with those words, have no other gods before me. And I want to ask you, what does God mean when he says before me? What's he talking about? I think there are some things that we can rule out, and I'm speaking especially to the younger ones here. When God says have no other gods before him, he doesn't mean that you can have other gods as long as they are placed lower in priority, less important. In the world that Israel was living in at the time when these commands were handed down from the mountain, other peoples had many different gods, and some among God's own covenant people were divided in their loyalty. God is not saying that you can have other gods as long as they are lower than him. That's not what's meant by the words before me here. Nor is he saying that you can have other gods as long as you keep them out of his sight. His sight is omniscience. Everything is before him. 
There's nothing God does not see in your private life, in the secrecy of your mind or heart. It is all before him. Simply stated, God is commanding here that you may have nothing which stands in his place. You are not to have any kind of God whatsoever beyond him. Now somebody could object and say, wait, aren't we agreed there are no other gods? Aren't those just fictions, imaginations? And there have been those who have tried to assert at different times, well, maybe in the Old Testament they thought there were other gods and God is battling with them. No, you are simply demonstrating that you are not familiar with the Old Testament. Really, what gets to the heart of what God is dealing with here is summarized for us extremely well in our catechism. Question and answer 95, if you look with me, it clarifies what the heart of the first commandment is. When it tells us what idolatry is all about. Now, I'll give you a moment again to look there. When you think about idolatry, sometimes it does mean literally bowing down to an image. There are millions, and how do we communicate what a million is besides it sounding like a statistic? Millions and millions and millions and millions of people on earth right now, this day, given how many there are, this very moment, it's safe to say, are literally worshiping idols, physical idols of stone. Great money is invested to build bigger and better ones, even in the modern era. This has not ended just because it's not here in the increasingly secularized West, which has its own idols. And so in a literalistic sense, we of course have to acknowledge that. Joshua 24, verse 14, the Lord through Joshua tells his people, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. So I do want to be clear. If there is anyone, whether here or maybe somebody in your life, who has divided loyalties with another religion, we do not mix them. And that will offend the world because they want to say, well, really, people are just praying. They're using that idol as a kind of icon for the real God that is above all and as long as we're worshiping a higher power then it really doesn't matter which not according to the Lord in Joshua 24 whatever your fathers were worshiping it needs to go it's gone it's done Christianity for that reason when it has been understood has always been offensive we shouldn't be offensive for no reason at all but there are times when we must draw a line But then look at what it says in the Catechism in question and answer 95 when it raises the question, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Idolatry is having or inventing something that you trust alongside of or in place of God. When we say trust here, we mean looking to that thing to provide things that God alone is supposed to provide. Or in the way he has promised to provide things. He's, for instance, promised that ordinarily he will provide for us in terms of our material needs, either through our own work or through legitimate means like the care of the church, the care of the community, the care of our parents. And therefore, if you are willing to, for instance, steal to provide for yourself, you've made an idol of your desire to have whatever it is that you want. It's anything standing in the place of God that divides our loyalty from him in terms of our love, our affections, our obedience. So what is the Lord calling us to in this commandment? 
He's calling us in the words of 2 Corinthians 7 to cleanse ourselves of all idolatry. This is not a one-time thing. This is an everyday thing. There's not just one time in your life where you can go through your house and through your heart and just get rid of all the idols and from now on, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is a sense in which we make a principled decision to do that in an ongoing way. But I want to ask you whether or not you can say this day it has been your desire to be clean before the Lord. To scrape away everything that is competing for the loyalty of your heart, the loyalty of your affections. In the first command, the Lord is saying, give it to me. And the blessing of that in Jesus Christ is that when we seek to give God what is his, he gives us more and more of the sense of an enjoyment of himself. You cannot outgive God. You simply cannot. And the more that you give spiritually to the Lord, the more he pours into us spiritually. Now, I'm not denying that there are times when we feel relatively barren for a whole variety of reasons. And even somebody who's attending to the means of grace has a solid devotional life, may for a whole variety of reasons pass through such times. Ordinarily speaking, and especially in the age to come, the promise is sure. Those who seek to honor the Lord, particularly in the first commandment, will receive the Lord as their inheritance. Now, as we look at this doctrine, we're going to first look at what it means practically. That's going to be the bulk of our time, just examining what is the Lord actually calling us to here. And then I want to set before you a perspective that I hope will even propel you in this obedience, or maybe renew you for this obedience. So let's look first again at what this means practically. What I'm about to say applies to every one of the commands, and it's reflected in all of our confessions. When I say all of our, I'm not even just talking about the continental reformed expressions of the faith, the three forms of unity we sometimes call them, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, but also in our cousin confessions, the Westminster Larger and Shorter, for instance, their catechisms. What I'm about to say is reflected in all of them. It's very important. That is, when you look at the commands of God, You need to develop the ability to think of them both negatively and positively. What do I mean? Negatively, I mean you have to be able to list out to yourself what is prohibited, what is off limits, what is God saying we should not do. That's the negative view. And the Ten Commandments are largely laid out in the negative. That's not wrong to do that. But neither does that exhaust the way that we can relate to the commands. In fact, as God relates eternally to the righteousness of God, it's positive. He knows exactly how he's going to be. He's going to be godlike. And so we have to ask, what should we do? Often people struggle with sin, to some extent, does come down to focusing only on what they should not do, and not in its place doing what they should do. Idle hands are the devil's playground, they say, and there is a lot of truth in that. The Lord calls you not to fixate or even obsess on what is prohibited, but he calls you to be about your father's business. So what does it mean for us as we look at this command? Have no other gods before me. The catechism begins with the negative side. And again, the Ten Commandments lay out the negative for us. Look at me at verse 94 and consider or question and answer 94. See what it says. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, 
Avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Now pause and note some things. When it says, I not wanting to endanger my own salvation, are we saying that a genuine believer, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, born again, bearing fruit, can lose their salvation if they do these things? No, that is not what the catechism is talking about. You take the catechism as a whole, not any one phrase all by itself. But the scripture is emphatic. Those who persist in sin, who persist when confronted in what the Bible sometimes calls high-handed sin, where we can't even talk anymore about, I struggle with it. There's no more struggle. They are given over to it, and they reject any kind of accountability, meaningful accountability. Those who persist in such things are not to be regarded as having a credible profession of faith. And your salvation, your deliverance, as far as humans can relate to it and anticipate it, is very much called into question when you persist in such a state. Now, what are the things that are laid out here as being prohibited? Avoid and shun all idolatry. We've seen that has a broad application, but also a more narrow one. Sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to any other creatures. I'd imagine in this particular congregation, the vast majority of us feel that we are pretty safe at this point. We are not doing these things. And I'd want to suggest to you, well, one, give credit to the Lord where it's due, that he has done a good work in us, if that is true. But on the other hand, we need to think carefully about what these things even mean. When this confession was written, it was written, 1563, at a time when you are dealing with basically early modern, late, late medieval, depending how you parse things, European culture. And these were particular struggles for those people. So it's not meant to exhaust all of what is prohibited in the first commandment. But think for a moment about what sorcery is. I doubt there's anyone here who identifies as a sorcerer. And it's probably hard to find sorcerers around us until you ask what it is. Sorcery, according to the Bible, is using illicit or forbidden means to try to access knowledge God has not seen fit to grant you. Sorcery is also described in the Old Testament as basically trying to manipulate nature, manipulate the world in ways that God has forbidden, where he's not chosen to give us access. I drive around Phoenix, particularly the Arcadia area, and what do I see? I see all kinds of psychic readers, tarot people, etc., there are people who very much do believe that they can get into information that they ought not to have. We do this in a different way when we demand from God superstitious signs from him that he has not given to us in the word, where we want to jump over the responsibility to interpret the word. I've told the story before. I only have so many. But I wondered after a, a, a breakup when I was in my late teens. What was God's will for me in Bible college? And I walked into the chapel and there was a big Bible open. And I went right up to it. God, what is your will? And it just hit me, whatever is written upon the page, surely that is his will. And I went to it and it was Ezekiel 16. If I recall correctly, it's Ezekiel 16, where it says basically, whoever takes a wife in this place, the wife and the children shall die. That was superstitious, 
Because superstition, rightly understood, is again any illegitimate attempt to manipulate or to get information. But there's a yearning that exists in our hearts as well for that sort of thing, where we want to have more than God has seen fit to give to us. Superstitious rights can exist among us as well. Or even a superstitious outlook where you feel, again, if God forbid somebody just knocks over the elements, oh no, is it a sign? No, it's a sign that somebody was clumsy, that it wasn't set the right way. We're not to infer beyond the scripture. Prayer to saints or to other creatures. Our conviction concerning saints in this matter, we do believe that there are conscious believers who are with the Lord, who have passed out of this life, but we don't believe that they suddenly have attributes that are limited to God, to be able to hear all everywhere at once. Or that they've been accorded the authority to manipulate nature in order to make things safe. I experienced that when I traveled on, uh, on a trip with my dad to Russia in the early 2000s to visit pastors there at some churches. And we got into a taxi and a Russian Orthodox taxi driver was blowing through red lights. And as he would do this, he would put his hand on the dash where there was a picture of a saint. I think he was hoping that the saint would manipulate all of reality at once so that none of the cars would endanger us. There is one who does have such authority, though I would not test him in that way. God calls us to obey the ordinary laws that are in place. But Christ alone has this. And when we look away to all of these other things, we do dishonor to the Lord. Idolatry has a broader application even than that. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 contains this passage where it says, For this you know, no fornicator or unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. A covetous man whom he clarifies is an idolater. To covet is not to want something you don't have. It's perfectly fine to want food, right? To want nourishment. Covetousness is desiring what God has not desired, what he has revealed he does not desire for you. Or yearning against his providence, saying whatever your secret will is, I don't want that, I want my way. And that's described by James as, at its heart, idolatry. Putting something else in the place that God has a right to. Now, it can be expanded upon in this way. In the Westminster Larger Confession, or Catechism of the Faith, Again, that's our our cousin confession. Hear what it says in terms of what is forbidden. The sins forbidden in the first commandment are, among other things, atheism and denying or not having a god, idolatry and having or worshiping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true god, the not having and avouching him for our god, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in the commandment, It includes ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, bold and curious searching into his secrets, all profaneness of speech and life, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections on other things. That's just the beginning. It goes on and on and on. And I would encourage you, When you hear a sermon like this, it cannot possibly begin to do anything but tap what it means on the negative side to have no other gods before the Lord. If you want, I can make known to you books that do that. And as you dwell on 
the mind of God. That is how, through his spirit, he transforms you to desire. As you look upon the law, you begin to behold, that is a beautiful life, the life that is free of these things. But we also have to look at the positive side, and that's what the catechism does in question 94 when it turns from the negative to the positive. Look with me again. Where it says positively that I rightly know the only true God Trust him alone, look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against the will of God in any way. Renounce all created things. We have not done this, but there is one who has. And think about the first commandment in relation to the temptations which Jesus faced. If there's one command in particular that Satan was tempting Jesus concerning, it's the first command, because it touches all the others. In Matthew chapter 4, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That is the heart of it. Christ is the embodiment of what you were called to do and are called to do. Just because you are redeemed in Jesus Christ has not delivered you from the obligation of obedience. We obey for a different reason, but you still have that obligation. Renounce all affection or divided loyalty towards anything that tries to take God's place in your life. So that's the basic idea of what we're called to in this command. It does us no good to pretend that we make it part of the way and it's enough that the Lord will just overlook the difference, as if salvation is by some combination. I know the gospel is familiar to the vast majority of us. Probably at this point, for the amount of times that we hear these things, the only person who has not grasped this is a person who is either so young they can't comprehend it, can't can't comprehend what's being said, or somebody who is still blinded in their sight, blinded spiritually from seeing these things. And yet it is a fact that we all, in our gratitude, at times, don't feel so very desperately, I need deliverance. But when you die, you will stand before a holy God and his light will go up like the greatest burst of a furnace. And there may be that thought, what right do I have to be here? Except the assurance that Jesus Christ, as a true human being, has committed himself to the Father, to have no other gods. And all his human life, Jesus was perfectly letting nothing else come into place. And we do it over the smallest stuff. Rejoice, rejoice that you have a Savior like Jesus Christ. That the millions upon millions who will be redeemed in him will be there because he was absolutely faithful. How do we change? How do we grow then to live in light of these things? On the one hand, we have to recognize something that I sometimes describe as radical humility. Radical humility. Reformed people are fond of talking about how our regeneration, our being born again, is, I'm going to use a big word here, but I want you younger people to lay hold of this, or you less familiar people, monergistic. Monergistic, mono one, 
the ergistic kind of energy, one energy. Although God incorporates our will in how he brings us to faith, there is an activity on our part, yet the inclination, the changing of our nature, the energy behind our working is his. So, for instance, when you think about why in glory you're not going to sin anymore, it's not that God is rubbing his hands together, I really hope the moment they die they stop sinning. Nonsense. You will not sin in glory because God will finish the work that he began in you. We believe that God is monergistic in that beginning of the work that we call regeneration. But we also believe he is monergistic in sanctification. A largely overlooked belief among Reformed people. Doesn't mean that you don't exert faith. But by his sovereign power, we are freed more and more to walk in his way. Faith, in that sense, is looking away from the power you had by your nature and trusting he will work in me today. He will work in me in this moment. I believe that he's empowering me for the thing he calls me to. How does he do it? He does it through a transformation that is related to the law. Romans chapter 12 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that, by the test, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So it's as we look at his law and as we look away from ourselves that the Holy Spirit changes us. Still, you might find yourself struggling with, you know, I think about that, but I'm not as changed as I desire. We're there with you, if you can say that sincerely, that you yearn for growth, but you feel like you have not grown as much as you want. Welcome to mature faith. No one, if they are growing, feels that they have attained. No one has. In fact, the more you grow, the more you yearn that you grow more. But is there a way to spur that on? And I want to lay before you a perspective that might propel your growth with respect to this first command. This functions really as our our closing idea. What is the perspective that spurs us on? I want you to look at Exodus 20 again at verse 1. On the one hand, the command applies to the whole world, but if you only think of it in that way, it serves only to stir up condemnation and fear and frustration. There's a context to the command as we relate to it in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord. And you have all caps there to signify to us this is the covenant name of God. I am that I am, and in effect, I am everything you need me to be. I am the Lord, your God. Now, isn't God the God of all creation? In the sense that he's the creator and judge, yes, but not in the sense that he has committed himself as redeemer. That he has chosen in mercy to look upon you as his own. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, what did they do to get him to be that for them? Nothing. It's his goodness. And as you think about this command and the Lord says, have no other gods before me, you shouldn't go back to, and if I do that, he'll be my God. Start at the conviction of faith in the gospel. He is my God. He's promised everyone who looks to him and takes him up on the promise of generosity in Christ has it. The Lord is my God who has brought me out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, that's true for us as Gentiles as well. We've been grafted in. There are not two churches of God. There's one church. We've been grafted in with the believing people of the Old Testament. So it's true. We have been brought out of the land of Egypt. Somebody becomes an American even. They have their citizenship as an American. 
And they want to say, well, remember when we had the Civil War? And imagine somebody saying, well, you, you had no part in that. Well, neither did you. None of us were alive then. We're talking about a corporate relationship to a history. And we were brought out of the land of Egypt. Those are our stories, too. We are united with God's covenant people as one. But then it goes so much further because that whole story was worked by God in order to be a picture, a down payment on a bigger promise. Jeremiah 17, verse 5 and 7, written at a time when Israel had just fallen into the gutter of its own idolatry. The Lord promises at a time when they could do nothing to deserve it. He says, Jeremiah 17, 5 and 7, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the one who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. There's a curse there. But then he says, but blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. God promises that the blessing will come from him as we trust in him. And then how will he work it out? Ezekiel 36, he says, in that day, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Believer in Jesus Christ, don't just trust in him for your forgiveness. Trust him that he's actively changing you. That's why you're displeased with yourself. Trust him to empower you more and more. Believe that the coming year may be different than the last year, that growth is real. Believe that there is deliverance, especially in the age to come. So as I've set these things before you, I've urged you, look at idolatry as it is. It's, not, it's much more than just religious ritual kind of stuff. It's allowing anything to occupy the place God demands for himself, to be your satisfaction. And God's aim in giving you this command is on one hand, to get what is his, but on the other hand, to give you himself. The commandment is for your good. May God help us to receive it as such. Let's go before him in prayer. Our Father, you are worthy of our love and We are grateful that you've given us this whole creation full of many good things, but we confess that owing to our corruption and ignorance, we often prefer the creation in a way that excludes you from our mind, from our gratitude. We ask you, Lord, that you would please cleanse us of all idols. We know that if you should grant us another year of life, we won't experience it perfectly any week, but we pray for substantial transformation meaningful growth, that others would be encouraged at the progress they see in us. We pray that as we fall in different ways, we would trust you that you will cleanse us, that Christ will make good on the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we receive the supper, you would grow us through that means of grace too. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you in the Thin Forms and Prayers book to look with me at page 45 where you'll find the formulary. And again, I want to remind you if you're visiting this evening and you'd like to partake with us to fill out the card if you've not done so and to drop that in the offering bag when it comes by and you may partake. If you cannot affirm it, then we ask that you would please abstain. But as we prepare to receive the sacrament, hear together with me these words. Beloved, hear now the words of the Apostle Paul concerning the institution of the Holy Supper. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When our Lord said, do this in remembrance of me, he ordained this holy supper as a constant memorial and visible proclamation of his death. The Apostle Paul also teaches us that as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. As we partake, therefore, we bear witness that our Lord Jesus was sent by the Father into the world to take upon himself our flesh and blood and to bear the wrath of God on the cross for us. We confess that he came to earth to bring us to heaven, that he was condemned to die, that we might be pardoned, that he endured the suffering and death of the cross, that we might live through him, and that he was once forsaken by God, that we might forever be accepted by him. The sacrament thus confirms us in God's abiding love and covenant faithfulness, sealing to our hearts the promises of his gracious covenant and assuring us that we belong to his covenant family. Let us then be persuaded as we eat and drink that God will always love us and accept us as his children for the sake of his son. Our Lord also promises that as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we are fed with his crucified body and shed blood. To do this, he gives us his life-giving spirit through whom the body and blood of our Lord become the life-giving nourishment of our souls. Thus, he unites us with himself and so imparts the precious benefits of his sacrifice to all who partake in faith. As a means of grace, this meal also unites us with one another in the bond of the spirit As the apostle says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Thus, even as he unites us with himself, he strengthens the bond of communion between us as children. Finally, the remembrance of our Lord's death revives in us the hope of his return. Since he commanded us to do this until he comes, the Lord assures us that he will come again to take us to himself. As we commune with him now under the veil of these earthly elements, we are assured that we shall behold him face to face and rejoice in the glory of his appearing. Our Lord Jesus will surely do what he has promised. Let us draw near to his table then, believing that he will strengthen us in faith, unite us in love, and establish us more firmly in the hope of his coming. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, with one accord, we thank you for having counted us through your mercy worthy to come to your table and receive the elements that signify to us the most wonderful sacrifice as well as the presence of Christ by his Spirit to all who believe. We ask that you would please help us, Lord, not to look upon these things carnally, merely as bread and wine, but through them to receive the significance that you have accorded, that in partaking, our hearts would be lifted to heaven and we would find true nourishment in Christ himself. We pray that you would renew us in order that we might go out with fresh strength to serve the world in your name. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.